This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's uh, turn our attention to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance on our study this morning. Father, we're thankful that we have your word that guides and directs us, that informs us, that teaches us, and that challenges us in terms of our Christian life. Father, as we continue our study through this passage of the Sermon on the Mount, there are many things in this passage and this context that are difficult to understand. We pray that we might have clarity, that God the Holy Spirit would give us insight into what our Lord was teaching and that we might respond to the challenge in terms of our own individual Christian life and our focus in terms of uh, becoming more consistent uh, disciples, better trained, better equipped disciples, that we might glorify you in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study this morning, and we're in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be looking primarily at verses 19 and 20 looking again at the topic, what kind of righteousness? What kind of righteousness? Now, this is so important to understand the framework for this particular passage in this particular section. We went through the first 16 verses of Matthew 5, and that focused on the Beatitudes, these attitudes or these character qualities that were expected of a disciple. It's so important, I keep reminding you of this, that we have to understand contextually to whom Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to disciples. He's speaking to his disciples at this point. He's not speaking to a large multitude, although the multitude does come to him over time as he is teaching his disciples, and they're listening in. But his focus of, of, of attention is on his disciples. We'll see this several more times in Matthew. Some of the things he says here are said in some of the other contexts that are focused on disciple training. And therefore, we have to understand that when Jesus is talking to them, he's not talking to them as unbelievers. He's not giving them uh, criteria to evaluate if they are truly believers He is telling them as believers what is expected of them in terms of their spiritual life. So that's the first important thing to understand contextually. The second thing, as I keep pointing out, is that this is not in the dispensation of the church. This is still under the dispensation of the Mosaic law. It's in the church, it's in the age of Israel. But the principles that are here are timeless. 
They're not restricted to just the Old Testament period under the age of Israel or the church age. And so I have pointed out, as we have gone through these passages, how these principles are stated not only in the in the Old Testament context of the law, but also they are repeated in the New Testament epistles. The other part of the context that we have to remember is that Jesus is challenging his hearers to be prepared for the coming of the kingdom. The message of John the Baptist, his message, the message that he will be having his disciples teach as they go out is to, to Israel, not to the Gentiles yet, but to the house of Judah, the house of Israel, to those who are the, uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who have heard the promises, the prophecies down through the ages that that God is going to establish a kingdom, a literal, physical, uh, geographical kingdom in Israel with a ruler, a, an eternal king, a descendant of David on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And that this future kingdom, or this kingdom is yet future, but it, it, is, it is designed for Israel. And he is announcing that as the king, as the Messiah, he is offering this to Israel, but they have to meet a qualification before that kingdom will come into existence, and that is that they need to be rightly aligned with God in terms of their spiritual life. Failure to do so means that they're not qualified yet to, uh, for the kingdom to come. If they reject him as Messiah, then the kingdom will be postponed. So where we see the parallel for us is that just as they were in a period anticipating the coming of the kingdom that was not yet inaugurated, so we too anticipate the coming of the kingdom. Even though the, their destiny as Jews, as Jewish believers in the future kingdom is not identical to the destiny of church age believers and their role in the future kingdom nevertheless the character qualities that god expects from those who will have uh, privileges in the coming kingdom are the same these are character qualities that are the result of walking uh, according to the light of god's word and walking in obedience to him so having said that, we have to keep that in mind because when we come to certain challenging passages here, there are, there's a tradition in, in many, many the- theological backgrounds where they're taken as passages related to getting saved, that is securing an eternal destiny in heaven, as opposed to understanding that these are spiritual life passages. They're addressed to not how to become, not how to gain a spiritual life, how to become a believer, but they are, uh, they are addressed to believers in terms of how they should live as disciples. And in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus commissioned his disciples, the 11 at that time, because the context is, is after the ascension, I mean, after the uh, resurrection, before the ascension, Jesus commissioned them to go and make disciples. This is a mission of the church, why it's called the Great Commission. This is what Jesus directs us to. It's not just evangelism. It is to train believers to grow to spiritual maturity. And so as we get into the 
heart of the Sermon on the Mount, which actually begins in the, everything we've studied up to verse uh, up to verse 16, is simply the introduction or the uh, prelude to the sermon. Once we get into the sermon, starting in verse 17, the core part of it, Jesus begins to contrast the kind of righteousness that should characterize a believer's life versus the kind of superficial uh, righteousness that was being taught and popularized by the religious leaders of his uh, of his day. So we come to our passage in Matthew 5:17. I want to go back over what we saw last night because this is crucial to understanding the context, the structure of these four verses. Primarily today we're, we'll look at verses 19 and 20. But Jesus began by by looking at an issue at the very beginning before he began to to teach to make sure everyone understood that he was not contradicting Moses. He wasn't contradicting the Torah. He was contradicting the false teaching of the Pharisees, the wrong teaching of the Pharisees. But before he started to uh, contrast what he was saying as the truth with the false teaching of the Pharisees, he wanted to make sure people understood that he wasn't uh, wasn't violating the Torah, he wasn't throwing out Moses, he wasn't subverting Moses. So he said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, a phrase, as we saw last week, that refers to the entirety of what we refer to as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, Hebrew Scriptures are divided into three groups, the law, the, which is called the Torah, the prophets, which are called the, the Nevi'im, and the writings, which are called the Ketuvim, the threefold division of the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, and often they're just simply referred to as the law, referring to the entirety of the 39 books of the Old Testament, or sometimes the law and the prophets, or today it will be referred to as the Tanakh, uh, taking the first letter of each of those words, T for Torah, N for Nevi'im, K for Ketuvim, Tanakh, would refer to the Old Testament Scriptures. And Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. And then he explains that. He says, Surely I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle, not even the smallest part of a, smallest letter or part of a letter will pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. We talked about that last time. And then he continues to explain this. He says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, in other words, whoever Breaks and the word there for breaking we'll see is related to the word destroy that's used in Matthew five seventeen. So he says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we sort of need to work backwards to understand some things in this context. The last thing he says is that has to do with entering the kingdom of heaven, a phrase that we often think of as getting justified, as equivalent to going from spiritual death to spiritual life, equating the kingdom of heaven with heaven itself, and therefore this is a phrase for getting saved. 
However, the phrase might mean that in some contexts. In other contexts, it clearly refers to something beyond simply getting saved. It, it refers to the uh, experiencing the fullness of the future kingdom. This is seen in Acts 14.22, where uh, Paul says, uh, or describing Paul's teaching and uh, on his first missionary journey, he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. So it's talking about those who are already believers and teaching them that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, if entering the kingdom of God means getting saved in the sense of securing your eternal destiny in heaven, then it's not by faith alone in Christ alone. You, The only way you can get saved is by overcoming tribulations. That would be a works gospel. So obviously entering the kingdom here means something more than just moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. So Jesus is talking about something more. He's talking about entering the fullness of the future kingdom. Now, in verses 17 and 18, as we covered last week, Jesus sets this up and says he's not going, he's not overturning, he's not abolishing, he's not nullifying what's taught in the Old Testament. He's going to fulfill what's in the Old Testament. He fulfills it in his own life, uh, demonstrating uh, perfect righteousness, but he's going to show how this is then the basis for uh, developing experiential righteousness. Now, the other concept I developed last time was understanding the, the terminology that we find in Scripture, that saved is often used in three phases or three tenses, as some have put it. When we trust in Christ as Savior, we're saved from the penalty of sin. Our eternal destiny is no longer the lake of fire. It is heaven. That occurs instantly when we trust in Christ as Savior, when we believe he died on the cross for our sins, and that is called justification. Immediately after that, as we have now been born anew, we receive new life in Christ, that new life has to grow. In, in 1 Peter 2, 2, Peter says, As newborn babes, we are to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. So now we have to grow. That's the spiritual life. And as we grow and apply the word, that under the filling of the Holy Spirit, that produces an experiential righteousness. So sometimes when the Scripture talks about righteousness, it's talking about the imputed righteousness that's the basis of justification in phase one. Sometimes it's talking about experiential righteousness in the spiritual life in phase two. That's going to be the issue in understanding what, what, uh, what Matthew is writing, what Jesus is saying in verse 20. Many of times I have taught this as if that passage were teaching justification righteousness, contrasting the righteousness required to enter into heaven for eternal life versus the false works-based righteousness of the Pharisees. That is not correct, and it, it's got to be understood this way. So let's understand the first kind of righteousness, which is imputed righteousness. God is absolute perfection. He's perfect righteousness. No one can have fellowship with God apart from perfect righteousness. That, that even though we do many relatively good things and there are many wonderful people in this world and they do many beneficial things for everyone, it's not the kind of righteousness that 
qualifies us to have a relationship with God. We can only have a relationship with God if we have perfect righteousness, absolute righteousness. And the problem with us is because of sin, we lack righteousness. Our righteousness is relative in comparison to other people. We might be pretty good, but in comparison to God, we're all miserable failures. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our, uh, all of us have become unclean and all our righteous deeds, it doesn't say our unrighteous deeds. Our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So at the cross, Jesus Christ, who is perfectly righteous, bears in his body on the tree our sin. So that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin uh, was made sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So our sins are imputed to him, and he pays the penalty so that when we trust in Christ, his righteousness is then imputed to us so that it becomes our righteousness. It's not that we become righteous, but that we are now uh, credited with his righteousness, and it's on the basis of his righteousness that we are declared righteous. God doesn't make us righteous. He doesn't change our, our our nature so that we are no longer sinners. We're still sinners, but we have a new reality. We're made new creatures in Christ. We've received his perfect righteousness, and we're saved on the basis of his righteousness so that God blesses us, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. That's imputed righteousness. That's the foundation for our uh our uh, being our destiny in heaven. Now, going back to our uh, to our passage, the f- we see that this is all connected together, and Jesus is giving them specific instructions, and he's teaching them as disciples. And in this chart, I've underlined the the parallel phrase in verse eighteen and in verse twenty that I say to you. And the you here is plural. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's explaining these principles to them. So just as in verse 18, he's saying uh, to them, as, as explaining to them as disciples, that he will fulfill the law. In verse 20, he is still speaking to the same people as disciples. Now, I may, some of you may be saying, okay, I got the point. They're believers. All right already. But you can read commentary after commentary and hear sermon after sermon on this, and all of a sudden they get to verse 20, and he's talking about imputed righteousness. He's talking about unbelievers at that point. And and if we're going to be consistent, we have to understand that he's talking, he's giving instruction to his disciples related to their spiritual life. He's not suddenly shifting to where he's talking about how to get the kind of righteousness you need to be saved. That changes everything. As I indicated earlier, in Matthew 5.17, Jesus says he didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. He didn't come to destroy but to fulfill. This is the Greek word kataluo. It's a compound word made up of the preposition kata and the verb luo. And there's about five or six different forms of luo that you find in the New Testament. 
each of which it builds on the basic meaning of luo, which means to destroy something, to annul it, to abolish it, to set it free, to release it. It's used for divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7. It's used in different passages for different kinds of things, a rather broad-based word, but the core meaning is to release, to annul, to abolish, to abolish something. Now, if we see, the reason I'm pointing that out in verse 17 is because in verse 19, he uses the, the, the root word luo when he brings in this second point. His first point is he's not going to destroy the law. The next point he makes, but whoever therefore does attempt to change, annul, or abolish the commandment, a commandment as it stands in the Torah. And so he uses luo rather than kataluo, but he is drawing a connection. Reason I'm belaboring this point is to show that, because sometimes people go in here and they take these verses individually without correlating the context. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but there are some who may uh, teach a false view of the law. They may minimize it. They may rationalize even in the most insignificant case, they're rationalizing the least commandment. That's his idea here. Whoever, therefore, the therefore indicates he's drawing a deduction from what he has said already. Whoever, therefore, breaks or annuls one of the least of these commandments. Now, we look at the Old Testament law, the Torah. It's not just the Ten Commandments. There were 613 commandments. So there would be some commandments that were listed in the Torah that you might think, well, that's not so significant, that the Torah says I need to build a parapet around the roof of my house so that nobody inadvertently falls off. Well, that's not so important. We don't really need to do that. That's an insignificant law. We don't need to do that. Now, people would say, okay, well, I can buy that. That's not nearly as significant as something like murder or theft or adultery or some of the other uh, major commandments in the Torah. Uh, we don't really need to pay attention to that. What Jesus is saying is that whoever annuls the least of these commandments and then teaches others to do that, so they've minimized the law, they're not in the kingdom. Read the text. Don't look at me. Look at the screen. Is that what he said? No. That's how many people read it, though. We just kind of go past that. It says, whoever teaches you to break the least of these commandments and teaches men shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Where are they? They're in the kingdom. See, he's not talking anywhere in this context about unbelievers. He's talking about distinctions among believers. And so here you have somebody who's minimizing the law. He's still in the kingdom, but he is least. He's the low man on the totem pole. He is the lowest. He is the least in the kingdom of heaven. In contrast, Jesus says, whoever does and teaches them, so doing the law is application. It's not trying to earn righteousness through obedience. It's simply doing what God says to do. Whoever does and teaches them, in other words, whoever honors the intent of, this, of the law, 
shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we see a couple of things from this passage. One is that there are going to be distinctions in the kingdom. There are going to be some who are great and some who are less, who are least. It depends on how they handle the word of God in terms of both what they do in terms of application in their own life, as well as what they uh, communicate and teach to others. So we see this very clearly in this particular passage. Both are in the kingdom. Both the least and the great are in the kingdom. They're both justified. They're both saved. So the context in in 17 and 18 is talking about the fact that Jesus did not come to nullify the law. In contrast, he's saying that there may be some who do try to nullify, minimize, rationalize obedience to some aspects of the law, but the ones who do that will be insignificant, have insignificant roles in the future kingdom, but they're still there. So far, we're still talking about believers. Now he's going to bring in another level of explanation in verse 20, as indicated by the first word, gar. There's not a break here. If he were using, if he were changing the topic, changing the focus, this would be indicated by a number of different conjunctions. But he uses an inferential conjunction here, which indicates that, that he's explain, or excuse me, he's using an explanatory, uh, conjunction here, indicating that verse 20 is further explaining what he's already been saying. If he's already been talking only about believers and distinctions among believers, then it must follow on the basis of grammar that what he's going to talk about in verse 20 is still talking about these distinctions among believers, not distinctions between unbelievers and believers. So in verse 20, when Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So if entering the kingdom of heaven, as I pointed out earlier, doesn't mean getting eternal life, it means entering into the fullness and the richness of the blessings in the future kingdom, then Jesus isn't talking here about the kind of righteousness you need to be justified. He's talking about the kind of righteousness that should characterize the life of a justified believer. And that is further developed in the rest of this passage as he contrasts the kind of life that the, uh, that the Pharisees were talking about, the kind of righteousness that they taught, which was a superficial righteousness, an external righteousness that didn't have to do with the heartfelt obedience to the law, an, inter- uh, an obedience internally, versus the kind of righteousness expected of a believer. Now, just a couple of other uh, verses to point out some things about this phrase, entering the kingdom. I want you to turn with these passages. I want to point out a couple of things. And if you just stay in Matthew and turn over a few, few chapters to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus uses this phrase, enter the kingdom of heaven again, in Matthew 18, 3. But I want to look at the context for just a minute. The context in chapter 18 is a context of Jesus giving instruction to his disciples. 
He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. At that time, we read in verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What did we just learn? We just learned, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, that the person who teaches obedience to the, to the law and does it will be greatest in the kingdom. So here we have two uh, similar passages talking about being great in the kingdom. It's not talking about how to get, it, get there so that in terms of getting to heaven, in terms of final salvation, it's talking about these different degrees of recognition in the kingdom. So Jesus is going to give him a little object lesson. He calls a small child to him and sets him down in the midst of the disciples. And he says in verse 3, which is the one I have up on the screen, uh, Assuredly or truly I say to you, unless you are converted, converted here, epistrepho, simply means is related to turning to God. So that would be related to phase one salvation. Unless you are converted and become as a, a little child, you may no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I would suggest that of all the conditions that might be given to someone today for getting into heaven, you know, you have to trust in Jesus and join a church or trust in Jesus and be baptized, trust in Jesus and obey his word. Trusting in Jesus and becoming a little child is not one of the conditions we usually hear today. But that's what Jesus is saying here. Is this an additional thing we have to do in order to make sure our eternal destiny is heaven and not the lake of fire? No, he's not talking about getting into heaven when we die. He's talking to those, to his disciples who are already justified about how they should live today in light of eternity. And that is, again, showing that the phrase enter the kingdom of heaven has to do with entering into the fullness and the richness of the blessings in the future kingdom. Now, he goes on to say in verse 4, just to pick up the context a little bit, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, again, he's talking about being prepared to live in the future kingdom and to serve the Lord. He goes on to say, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me, verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned uh, in the depths of the sea. Verse 8, let's just skip down to verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life. There's a similar phrase to entering the kingdom. But is entering into life the same as getting justified? Because if we say entering into life is the same as getting justified, then maybe we need to be cutting off our hands and feet a little more often. Well, that doesn't make sense. That violates the whole principle of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. So entering into life, again, has something more to do with our role and responsibilities in the future kingdom. But notice what he says at the end of the verse. This is really what I'm driving at as, an inter- as something that's going to come up next next time. It says, uh, it's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. Wait a minute, Robbie, you just said this isn't talking about eternal destiny in the lake of fire. It says everlasting fire. 
How can you say this is talking about discipleship and not eternal destiny? Well, let's look at the next verse. Verse 9, he says, If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Oh, once again, it's hellfire. Now, this is what we're going to have to focus on next time. No time to develop this this morning. This doesn't say hellfire in the Greek. It says Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. And let me give you a little hint that the Valley of Hinnom is not, that this is used about 13 times in the New Testament, and it never refers to eternal destiny. But every English translation translates the Valley of Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom in reference to eternal destiny. But we'll go through this next time and show that the Valley of Enom is basically a metaphor for despair, for sorrow, for regret, and for punishment in time, not punishment in eternity. Now, there's a parallel verse to this in Mark 9.47, which is similar to what we just read in Matthew 18, seven and 8. And Mark 9.47, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. There it's Gehenna. Gehenna, is going to, we're going to realize, is one of those phrases that tells us immediately we're talking about uh, sorrow, regret, uh, temporal punishment, or the loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, not, not getting justified. But then the phrase enter the kingdom of God also is used in some places to refer to phase one justification. And here Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3 about regeneration. And he says to Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, that's regeneration, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so this is a place where the phrase clearly means and is related to phase one. It's not a technical phrase that has the same meaning every single time you use, it's used. Context determines what the significance of the phrase is, and this is true with many words in Scripture. It's wrong to think that every time you see a particular word, it always means the same thing everywhere. That's true in some cases, but it's not always always true. And, of course, we saw the example earlier of Acts 14.22, which talking about going through adversity and how you handle them is a key to entering into the fullness of the future kingdom. So back to Matthew 5.20. Jesus is telling his disciples that the righteous life that God expects of disciples in relation to the future, their future position in the kingdom is a reference to a kind of righteous living that surpasses that that is taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. And coming up in the next, uh, there will be six sections coming up in Matthew 5, the rest of Matthew 5, where Jesus begins by saying, you have heard it said. And that's a reference to the oral tradition that was passed down from, by the rabbis over the last two or three hundred years, where they were teaching based on the oral law, the oral tradition, rather than the written uh, word of God, and so they minimized the righteous requirements of of the law in terms of experiential living. 
And so what Jesus is saying is if you really want to experience the, the richness of the kingdom and be qualified, be prepared for the kingdom, then you have to have a different kind of righteousness. That's why, remember back in Matthew 3, when the scribes and the Pharisees came out to John the Baptist and he called them a brood of vipers, he said that they need to produce works in keeping with repentance. He didn't say to them you need to repent because they apparently went through the external uh, motions of saying that they repented. But there was no change in character. There was no change in the quality of their life that went with the claim of repentance. And so they weren't therefore going to be qualified for the coming of the kingdom. And so all through this section, the emphasis is on the lifestyle of the believer, not on how to get into heaven in terms of justification. And all through the Old Testament, we have this emphasis on experiential righteousness, the kind of righteousness that should characterize the life of the believer. Psalm 106, verse 3 says, Blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times. That's not imputed righteousness or positional righteousness. That is the kind of righteousness that characterizes the life of the believer. In Psalm 15, 1 through 3, we read, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? That's a phrase related to fellowship with God. Who may dwell in your holy hill? The one who can abide or dwell is the one who walks uprightly and works righteousness or does righteousness, applies the word of God regularly in their life and speaks the truth in his heart. It's not just going through external motions. It is an internal reality. That's what we're going to see in the coming illustrations. Jesus is going to contrast the teaching of the Pharisees, which emphasized an external obedience only, a limited superficial obedience, versus a heartfelt obedience and response to the Lord. The Mosaic Law emphasized this as well. I pointed out these verses last time in Deuteronomy 6, 25. Deuteronomy 24, 13 emphasizes the kind that, that God expected righteousness from his people. If the Israelites were unrighteous, God threatened to remove them from the land, which he eventually did. They were still God's people. By analogy, we are still saved. We don't lose our salvation. But when we're disobedient, God disciplines us, and he removes blessing from our lives. When he, when we are obedient, we not only are blessed in time, but when we're walking by the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives that has eternal value, and it's for that fruit that we are judged and rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. And it is that which qualifies us for to rule and to reign and for other privileges in the coming kingdom. So next time we're going to come back, and as we get into the next passage, the first example, we're going to have to understand this issue related to Gehenna because that is clearly part of what Jesus says at the very end of verse 22, that if we commit murder in our heart, mental attitude of hate or anger, then we will be in danger of hellfire. See, we're going to run into this right away. And again and again, we're going to see Gehenna is always translated as hell, but it has nothing to do with the lake of fire. It has to do with 
uh, with temporal discipline and judgment. So we'll get into those issues next time. Remember, salvation is not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. But that doesn't mean that the believer is absolved of living a righteous life after salvation. There's a reason and a purpose in that, and that has to do with our our preparation to rule and reign with Christ in the coming kingdom. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged in these particular areas, to uh, be challenged in terms of how we understand and interpret phrases that seem familiar to us but are often not understood in their context very well. Father, we are thankful that we have a salvation that is by grace through faith, that it is not based upon anything that we do, but it's based upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and that when we believe in him, we are given perfect righteousness, and it's on that basis that we have eternal life. But nevertheless, we are expected to live now as your children. We are to live in a way that uh, that emulates you and that displays your character, and that can only come as we grow by the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as we walk by the Spirit. Father, we need to be challenged daily to be consistent in our Christian life and our Christian walk. Father, we pray for anyone here that is not saved or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would realize that salvation is a free gift. It's not based on anything that we do. There's not a bargain. There's not uh, any kind of change that we have to implement or initiate. It is simply to trust in Jesus Christ alone, and we have eternal salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and, and apply them in our lives, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.